Many years ago, in our first neighborhood, there was an unknown that no one ever saw, who left his mark painted everywhere. Love, joy, peace. White inside the white sign of a heart. On blank walls, on the big rock under the railway bridge on our way home, and the end wall of the terrace at the last turn into our street. Forgotten for a lifetime, remembered lately, when I found myself at the shelves, uncertain, checking my understanding of the beliefs of the First Church, the living witnesses, the chosen few sheltering together after the calamity. Leaderless, with their own first followers and their memories of the Christ. The records differ in detail, but all are agreed on his nature as a man, compassionate and precise in his judgment of men's conduct, arrogant and gentle in fatal combination, torn from the flesh in carnal pantomime, too direct for this world. Records of the last meal show the early signs of theatre as the courtesies formed themselves under their otherworldly burden into the first outline of a sacrament. And the generations of believers succeeded each other, multiplied and dispersed, leaving a growing waste of ornament between themselves and the beginning, the waste increasing through the centuries into what had been bothering me, the hierarchies, councils of elders, elaborate, self-admiring old men embracing each other, dressed up like old women, in a frankincense odour of property, the temple clattering with worldly goods, the house swept bare by Martin Luther, the gift of grace confirmed in love and joy and peace. Love, joy, peace. One mystery solved. The source of that old Dublin street sign. Leaving another mystery. What Martin Luther was doing so memorably on the walls of Inchicore in the late 1930s. There were other mysteries in the following years for someone thinking hard about things. Most of these were taken care of by the Catholic Church in a settled system of beliefs and rituals. The beliefs have faded, but not the rituals. Ritual can help or celebrate at important times in life. The naming of a newborn child, a couple's agreement in love at the hour of death. It was in an act of private ceremony that I formally abandoned or realized that I had abandoned my inherited system of beliefs. Ceremony I am kneeling before the altar under the bowl of blood with the seed of living light. I have yielded to an impulse growing in the cold mornings as I passed the great blank door and walked through the high darkness in among the pious presences praying before their candles. 
to kneel at the marble rail with my palms together before the hidden host. It is accomplished. I find that I am considering the detail in the cold stone. Awareness of the body, the breath warm on my fingers, my knees damp and chill. I will return through the high dark among the shadowy believers out onto Westland Row into the world. But the basic religious forms remained. They are really the natural forms. Established faiths only make use of them. Simple but major facts, like the Great Father, Mother and Child, Father and Firstborn Son, Brothers in Enmity, all embodied in the unforgettable Bible stories. Son of God She was sitting pale at the window, with her palms open upward on her lap, her face set in consent with a sealed smile. He is gone, the blood beating in the veins thick at his temples, leaving two memories in her flesh. A stranger fallen across her in fierce relief, without love, and the adjustment in her body. The baby's head was resting on its mother's neck, starting to doze off. Put it down carefully without waking it up. It gave a little jaded cry. Hold it close. It started to doze off again. Put it down carefully. There was a whinge of protest. Leave it, shutting the door quietly. Sometimes you have to let them cry it out. It lay there by itself without a stir. Then started crying in earnest, the little face wrinkled back in hatred. The head hanging on one side, signifying abandonment. The arms hammered open, signifying acceptance. The smile empty, signifying passive understanding. The Great Father, the Creator. The more we learn in these extraordinary times, the less we need a true Creator, or a third person, an agent between the Creator's world and our own, making a trinity. The Father, in absolute beauty, absolutely still. He has done everything in his power. The Son, hanging on high, reconciling the Father's requirements with his capacity. The third person, holding its breath. But the great image remains, the great Father on high. I believe it is really a reflection of man's own best efforts and best achievements of mankind. Eastward, past Liverpool and across the Alps, toward thoughts of a beginning, 
jewel of the total, solitary and most high, radiant in nothing, who, toying with matter and with cause and effect, discovered disorder and the self, and who, trying with these, whatever extremes it was of conscious indignity that interested you, found me, solitary and toying with my own basics of process and waste, until I found you and your preoccupations, and you faded into your own self. I pray you to remember me as I retire homeward across a darkening earth, still curious at my contaminated conception, not convinced that my existence might ever have been of relevance, and doubtful of any usefulness in my awareness of my condition, but thankful on the whole for this ache for even a minimal understanding. My own belief is that understanding is the most we can hope for. Man's discoveries, accumulating from generation to generation and gathering into an understanding of what and where we are, an understanding of the positives that are possible for mankind. A biological species characterized more by malice and greed than by generosity and goodwill. It is a situation calling out for something like religion, where we can place our faults and our problems and our best hopes. The self, brain and body, active in love and blood, is custodian of the first cause. Eager in early effort, determined in trial and error, persistent in inquiry, it bears the source in its red meat toward an indistinctly conceived other, waiting, unbegotten, at the appointed place. They will meet once, speechless, in carnal understanding, accepting that the life form as we have it is inadequate in itself but that, having discovered the compensatory devices of love and the creative and religious imaginations, we should gather in each generation all the good we can from the past, add our own best, and, advancing in our turn outward into the dark, leave to those behind us, with acts of hope and encouragement, a growing total of good adequately recorded, the arts and the sciences, with their abstractions and techniques, all of human endeavour, in a flexible and elaborating, time-resisting fabric of practical and moral beauty. The transition from religion into the world of symbol is an easy one. From the serpent and the tree in the Garden of Eden into the discoveries of Carl Jung and the processes of the mind. The mind working by enabling opposites and with unpredictable results. A hiss from near my heel. 
a slither up out of the shallows, and my old opposite breathed out of the branches in my path. I had been hoping for this to solve our joint requirements, you needing my nothingness to quieten your fevers, I needing the leap of life for my inertia. We were made for each other. Misplaced here together, who knows for how long more, neither asking to take part, both hoping for the unexpected to amend matters, knowing it is unlikely. I have decided, therefore, to make as much of things as I can. The thin, leathery lips approached my neck. It's a subject full of mystery. Some mysteries solved, many still unsolved, and best left aside with a prayer. A short prayer of my own, addressed I'm not sure where. In a disordered and misguided community, it is the accomplished and the more fulfilled who are to be found to one side, unwilling to take part. Dear God, let the minds and hearts of the main body heal and fulfill, and we will watch for the first sign of redemption, a turning away from regard beyond proper merit, or reward beyond real need toward the essence and the source. was Love, Joy, Peace, a private reflection on belief and unbelief by poet Thomas Kinsella. The programme was voiced by the poet and you heard him read Love, Joy, Peace, Ceremony, Son of God, Trinity, Reflection, Colloquy of the Carnal, Blood of the Innocents, Tenants in Common and Prayer. The music was Voces Intime by Sibelius. Sound supervision was by Tom Norton. Love, Joy, Peace by Thomas Kinsella was produced by Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Next tonight, love, joy and peace find little quarter in the no man's land of self-preservation and self-sacrifice. Nick Dunning, Emmett Kerwin and Chris McCallum star in the story of a foregone conclusion on a battlefield in World War One. This is Fighting Cowardice by Gary Mitchell. Thank you, Sergeant. Stop. 
At ease, Private. Yes, sir. Are you aware of the charges against you? No, sir. Nobody's explained anything to me. I was looking for Henny. I mean, Private Henderson, sir. He ran off somewhere when he heard vehicles approaching. He didn't realise it was our men, and when they got there, I was trying to explain to the officer in charge what was happening when I was arrested and brought back here. How do you respond to the charge of theft? I've never stolen anything in my life, sir. That's not true. Once in school, I stole a medal from another pupil, sir. The teachers had awarded it to another pupil by mistake. I won the race. He came second. They said I was disqualified. But the teacher who was in charge of the medals, let's just say, gave the medal to his blue-eyed boy instead of me. He didn't like me. Anyway, when I got home with the medal, I put it under me pillow, but I couldn't sleep that night. I felt so guilty. So I returned it the next day. I was just a silly little boy, but I've never stolen anything since. How do you respond to the charge of treason? Treason, so What? I don't understand what you mean, so I'm not a traitor. I'm a volunteer. How do you respond to the charge of cowardice? Cowardice, so Cowards don't volunteer, so I'm well aware of that, son. Am I to presume you are denying these charges? What charges, so I don't... I don't understand what I'm being charged with, so... Treason, theft and cowardice. Now I must have your response. I don't know what to say, so... Am I being charged with something like a criminal, so... I was just following orders. That's all I've done since we volunteered, so... I was trying to bring Private Henderson back, so... He was confused. I mean, this feels like I'm in a court or something. Is that what this is, so... I've already presided over three men shot dead by firing squad for cowardice. Is there a higher court than that? No, sir. There's not. Shouldn't I have somebody on my side to help me, sir? I don't know how this works. I'm not an educated man. I've had little schooling, sir. You were found yesterday two miles outside our perimeter and in the company of a German officer who was armed, as were you. Yet you were not identified, nor was there any compelling evidence to suggest either one of you were holding or attempting to hold the other prisoner of war. How do you explain these circumstances? Not easily, sir. Private Henderson was also found less than a mile from you. I have sworn testimony that two enlisted men saw him running from the scene of your arrest, and another enlisted man tracked him and arrested him some hours later. Is it perhaps easier to explain those circumstances? Yes, sir. Private Henderson was confused, so... As am I. Private Henderson followed me. All charges against him should be dropped immediately, sir. Men from his own battalion found him and he ran away from them. Private Henderson had a fever. I've seen it before, so... As I'm sure you must have. It's like in the middle of the battlefield a fog comes over a person and they don't behave like themselves. I think it helps them do what they have to do, so... But then I've seen men suddenly become aware... Like waking up in the morning. Then when their eyes are open, they see what they've done and they struggle with it. One such man kept uttering, Thou shalt not kill, over and over again while looking at his blood-soaked hands. I watched him pull his knife out of another man's chest so, and reach inside the hall. He wiped the man's blood on his face and that's when I saw the look in his eyes, like a fever, like a madman. And then he started crying and that's when he began uttering, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. He dropped his weapon and walked back to the ticket of battle and was gunned down instantly. 
cut in half by enemy fire, and then I saw him look up to the heavens and scream. The medical officer found no evidence of any fever in Private Henderson, and he certainly had no intention of returning to the battlefield. It comes and goes, sir. I recognised the signs and took Private Henderson with me, sir. To where? To the trees. The trees? That's where we found the German. He was holding O'Hara's hand, sir. O'Hara? Private O'Hara from Cork, sir. I knew it was his hand because most of his body was scattered around the tree. I also managed to find his letters. One for his mother and one for his wife, sir. They had private details in them, but I had to read them because volunteers sometimes put their wishes in them in case they Did get... the German officer surrender to you? He kept saying, Wo bin ich? Wo bin ich? So I took O'Hara's hand. Why? In one of the letters he mentions his wedding ring and says that if anything happens to him, his wife is to give the ring to his daughter, so... I couldn't get it off his finger, so... I just took the whole hand, so... We have a witness who claims you offered to share the proceeds from the sale of the ring with him. That's not true, so... But two men offered to buy it from me, and a torch said he would split any profit with me. I don't know the value of things like that in money, but I do know the value to his wife, so... Give me the names of those three men. I don't know them, sir. Could you identify them in person? I doubt it, sir. The man who offered to split any profit? He didn't tell me his name, sir. Did you ask? No, sir. Was he tall? He was sitting was down, Was he fat? Sir. He, was, he was inside a vehicle, What colour was his hair? I couldn't be sure, sir. After the trees, where were you planning to hide? I wasn't planning to hide anywhere, sir. What was your plan? I, I didn't really have a plan, sir. I was hoping Private Hennison's fever would go away and then I was going to bring him back. There was no fever. What were you going to do with the German? I hadn't decided anything yet, sir. I rather think you decided everything. You and Private Henderson are deserters and you were hoping that this German officer would offer you protection. So, Private Henderson is the bravest man I have ever seen, so. He sang a hymn louder than everyone else 15 minutes before we were due to go over the wall. And then he spoke a prayer loudly at the last minute and was, in fact, the first man over the wall on command. I advanced as quickly as I could, but didn't catch up with him until we entered a mist. There were explosions behind and in front of us and gunshots ringing out from every side. I saw Private Henderson shoot and kill six men before we entered the mist and as we came out of it, he shot three more before being hit in the face with debris from an explosion. That was the first time I saw him fall. Private O'Hara ran towards the trees, sir. Was he deserting? He was chasing somebody and shooting his weapon repeatedly, sir. Private Henderson was shouting something, not screaming, shouting, maybe singing. I crawled to him and tried to drag him to the side, but I had no idea what was the best direction to take him. He grabbed me and slapped me and demanded I help him get back to his feet, and I did, sir. And then you fled to the trees? No, we did not, sir. Private Henderson started shooting, but I was positive he was aiming in the wrong direction, but I wasn't certain. I just... I just think he was. How could you not know what direction you were aiming? We argued about it, sir. And then we struggled violently with one another, and that was the first time I saw his eyes rolling wildly in his head, and his face was white. Dirty, of course, but also a sort of yellow. Are you a doctor? No, sir. Do you have any medical training? No, sir. And by your own admission, you couldn't rely on your own judgment concerning the direction of our attack? Yes, sir. But amidst all of this confusion, you found it possible to diagnose a fellow combatant? No, sir. I recognised it, that's all. Explain precisely how you recognise this fever. So, this is not my first time on the front, and it isn't even my first campaign, sir. I have seen many brave men die in many different ways... 
but I have also witnessed a fever that takes hold of men in the heat of battle that maybe doesn't exist in any medical writing, but I know it exists out there amongst the bullets and the shells and the stench of fear and death, because as I already explained, I have seen it with my own eyes, so... I too have seen many men give up their lives in service of their country, but I have yet to see any such thing as you are describing to me. But what I have witnessed with my eyes on many occasions is a fear, a cowardice that grips men and makes them run away from the heat of battle, like yesterday. And that, Private Thompson, is what I believe gripped Private Henderson shortly before it gripped you. So, with respect, you are mistaken, sir. And you, sir, are a liar, a thief and a damned coward. And therefore, it is incumbent upon me to preside over yet another firing squad. Yes, what is it? Permission to enter, Captain. Yes, yes, enter, Sergeant. Sorry for the delay, Captain, but I had to wait for the translator to finish writing up everything the German officer told us. How is he, sir? I beg your pardon, Private. I don't recall anybody offering you permission to speak. Do you think there is something wrong with my hearing? No, sir. Sorry, sir. What happened again, sir? Have you been able to gather anything of any relevance from the German? A great deal, actually, Captain, sir. He is also a captain. Is that a fact? However, he claims to be a prisoner of Private Henderson. Does he now? How well do you know the translator? Not very well, but he has extraordinary letters of recommendation. Very well. How does he suggest our friend the captain came to be a prisoner of Private Henderson? It seems he is very fearful of Private Henderson, whom he claims killed several of his men before running out of ammunition and strangling the last one with his bare hands. And does he believe that we allow our prisoners of war to remain armed? No, sir. He was out of ammunition and therefore Private Henderson saw no reason to relinquish him of his weapon. It's not quite the same story, is it, Private? So, permission to speak, so... Permission denied. I've heard enough of you. The German officer says Private Henderson left him with Private Thompson while he scouted ahead for, in his words, more Hun to kill. We have witnesses claiming Henderson was a coward. The German says he was foaming at the mouth like a wild animal, snarling and gnashing his teeth. He further asserts the claim that the British are using experimentations and... Advanced medical procedures to change their soldiers into cannibalistic hordes. That was a rough translation according to our man, but what doesn't need any translation is the fear Henderson left in this man. What of Henderson? Private Henderson has no memory of any such incident and claims he ran away from the battle when he was gripped with fear. And we find ourselves reaching the truth at last. Sorry, he's delirious. I've seen it before. I've seen it before, you bloody idiot. Private! Sergeant... Have this man returned to his cell. I've seen this before. They have no memory of their actions during the fever, but, 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 but sometimes it comes back to them a couple of days later. You have to wait a couple of days. Sergeant. Tension. He was taken with madness. A rage. And, and when it was over, he was just confused. Just give him a couple of days. Is that too much to ask for? Private. Silence. Left turn. Tension. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Any further orders, Captain? Have them shot at dawn for cowardice from the face of the enemy. And make sure all the men are watching and aware of their crimes. Yes, sir. And bring this German officer to my quarters this evening. Will you require a translator, sir? Yes, yes. You can go, Sergeant. I'm feeling a bit tired. These court-martials really have taken quite a toll on me this day. See to it, I'm not disturbed until tea time.
I think there's still a bit of fight left in me yet. If I get the chance to go out again. I was already in the army when the war broke out and went to France on August 13, 1914, nine days after the declaration of war. The first big scrap we had was at Mons, at 12 o'clock Sunday noon. The Germans don't take any count of Sunday. You people over here don't realize what our boys went through in those days. That march from Mons was a nightmare. Unless we can do it, we can't imagine what an agonizing time it was. That was Fighting Cowardice by Gary Mitchell. Nick Dunning played the captain, Private Thompson was Emmett Kerwin and Chris McCallum played the sergeant. Sound supervision was by Damien Chanel. Fighting Cowardice by Gary Mitchell was produced by Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. And now Kaddish for King. 53 years on from the night of his assassination, Martin Luther King's spirited call for peace and equality still remains a dream. On the 28th of August 1963, a quarter of a million people gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington DC to hear Dr King speak. His most famous address, known as the I Have a Dream speech, is a masterpiece of rhetoric. The speech makes allusions to the Gettysburg Address, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Declaration of Independence, the US Constitution, Shakespeare and the Bible. In this vintage recording, there's a slight drop in quality after about six and a half minutes. But this is the segment that addresses the role of white people as King stresses that all freedoms are inextricably linked. This, perhaps, is the most pertinent point to the people of Ireland and the people in Ireland this Easter Sunday night. I am 
happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, The Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice.
have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro has granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must fail to conduct our struggle on the highest plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people, for many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. As we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always 
march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, 
will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom reign from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom reign from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom reign from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom reign from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom reign from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom reign from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
from London, Bill tells me, a group whose heart is in Dublin, Ireland, whose spirit is with the world, a group that's never had any problems saying how they feel, you too.
earlier you heard MLK and that was Pride by U2 as introduced by Jack Nicholson. We broadcast Martin Luther King's most famous address, the I Have a Dream speech, tonight in his memory, 53 years after his assassination in Memphis, Tennessee, April the 4th, 1968. Wishing you an Easter of love, joy and peace. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.